Hi, I'm Greg Weldon. I'm your host for Money, Markets, and New Age Investing. And this is episode number one of season two, kicking off our second season. And we're going to start with the t- what's happened since the lad podcast, last podcast in terms of the Fed, in terms of the perception that the Fed is kind of signaling that it's done raising interest rates, the degree to which the markets the forward markets in the short-term interest rate futures are pricing in rate cuts and it's doing so across the board geographically. In the U.S., the current Fed funds uh, spot market, 5.4%. For the end of next year, 45 You're looking for a 90 basis point decline. Basically, you're looking for three to four rate cuts of 25 basis points by the end of next year in the U.S. by the Fed. There is some expectation that the first rate cut could come as early as March. As early as March. Uh, And we'll talk about that insanity in a second. In the EU, the three-month rate at 408, the end of next year, 322. So you're talking about 75 basis points, three rate cuts priced in, from the ECB for next year. And the Bank of England in the, in the short sterling uh, is 540, current spot for the end of this year, December, and 466. So you're looking at three 25 basis point rate cuts priced into the markets for next year in the US, Europe, and the UK. You could see similar things if you wanted to look at the RBNZ in New Zealand, the RBA in Australia, the Bank of Canada. I mean, And frankly, you already have rate cuts taking place in a lot of places like I talked about last episode, that a place like Brazil, for example, has cut rates multiple times already. So this is, you know, fostered this kind of mini feeding frenzy in equities. Now, I would say before I get too far ahead of myself that I find it interesting that this degree of rate cuts is priced into the market, and we're you know the S and P is not even at new highs. Think about that for a second. So, and then think about well, what if they're not cutting rates by March or June? You remember what happened last time? It became evident that they weren't done, which was July. And what happened since then? You know, so in that context, the end of July and through August, Humphrey Hawkins specifically. So the degree to which we come now and the question then becomes, is this an inflation issue? All right. Can inflation come back? And if it does, how does that potentially hamper the Fed? And then, you know, does it even hamper the Fed? And we'll talk, get to that in a second. But it's important to note in the context of where the markets are projecting interest rates to be a year from now, four and a half in the U.S., three and a quarter in the EU, four and a half in the U.K., Let's look at some of the CPI numbers. Everyone celebrated the CPI report, which just came out, as being, you know, everything kind of accelerated in terms of bond bond prices going higher, yields going lower, dollar down specifically. Um, So in that context, let's look at some of the things from the CPI report. I'm going to give you a lot of numbers today because it's important because the facts matter. The numbers are what define kind of where we're at, not opinion. I'm not about opinion. I'm about looking at all the numbers, looking at the patterns, putting the pieces together, and then forging 
some thoughts around what might happen. And it's not what I think will happen. Of course, I have an opinion. But it's also, what if I'm wrong? What if this happens? Or what if this happens? Or what if this happens? Because then we thought about it. And we kind of have a sense of what we think we would do if that situation plays out. That's really kind of a big part of what we do in terms of managing money. It's not just, here's what I think it is, and plow all the money in there. I mean, you know, no way, man. Because, you know, I could be wrong. And it has to be much more uh, systematic. I'm not a system guy, even though I could be. I'm a math guy. But there has to be a methodology to it. And in the context of the interest rate cuts that are priced into the markets all over the place that are driving the action right now, and probably will continue to drive the action, I am not saying that I don't think we can't see that outcome with those interest rates. We could. But there's a lot of things to go through before we get there. And that's what the market's not pricing in. All right. Let's look at some of the components of CPI that you don't think about because the, the thing here is the Fed kept saying we don't want to have inflation embedded. It's embedded. Just by the numbers I'm about to give you, it's embedded because it's in every little nook and cranny. It is like, and I did a piece back in 2021 about what the, the great squid, the giant squid. There's a name for the giant squid. I can't remember the top of my head, but that was the name of the piece. And the giant squid was inflation. And the ship was the economy. And the squid grabs hold of the ship and the tentacles and the little suction cups get into every little nook and cranny of the ship, every room, every little, you know, the, the, the hold and the, the captain's quarters and everywhere. That's inflation being coming embedded when trash collection is up 6.5%. Household operations up 6.7. Six and a half for trash a year you're paying more. Dental work, 49 Personal care, excluding cosmetics, tooth, you know, toothpaste and mouthwash and, uh, you know, anything like that. 6.6, you know, hair products. 6.6. Cigarettes, 7.6. Beer, 5%. So some people are really hurting there. Luckily, not me. Wine, 5.3. Distilled spirits, 7%. The wine and distilled spirits are if you're out buying them. Rent, of course, 7.2. That's problematic because rent's once a year. It's the biggest monthly expense, and it's not coming down anytime soon, as you'll understand when I get to the housing part of today's podcast. <coughs> Non-prescription drugs up 8.1. Prescription drugs were up 0.8 for the month, which is almost 8% annualized, over 8% annualized. Pets and pet supplies up 6.5. Men's and boys' apparel up 5.3. Shirts up 6.7. Pants and shorts up 8.1. Paper products up 6.3%. All right. Hospital visits up 5.6%, and it was up 1.1% for the month. All right. Now, some of the food items, it's interesting because we've talked about this. You know, food, a lot of food items came down and have already bottomed and have already started to rise again. And now it's showing up. Beef up 1.2 for the month. Pork up 1.3 for the month. Automobile insurance up 1.9 for the month after being up 1.3 in September for the month. Who doesn't have to pay auto insurance? Trash collection, dental work, personal care products. I mean, it's in everything. Clothing, paper products, drugs. In the food category, 
Five out of six of the major grocery groups that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which puts out the inflation numbers, oddly enough, uh, published, all right? Uh, five out of six were up. Vegetables and fruits was the only single category down, excuse me, that did, didn't rise, and it was unchanged, all right? Now, I love to look at the city inflation numbers, and they come out every other month for each city. So it's a rolling, certain cities come this month, then other cities next month, then the cities that came this month will be two months from now, and so on and so forth. Obviously, most people live in the cities. I mean, so this affects the most people. Let's look at some of the changes in the city numbers for October since August, two-month change. San Diego, 4.9 up from 4.3. New York, New Jersey, New York City, New Jersey, 3.5 up from 2.5. Tampa, St. Pete, 6.7 up from 5.9. Denver, 5.4 5.4 up from 4.7. All of these now from here on after we get to this. I mean, 3.5 for Philly up from 3.1. 7.4 for Miami Palm Beach up from 6.9. Dallas, Fort Worth, 4.6 up from 4. Riverside, San Bernardino, Bernardino. Is it Bernardino? Bernardino? No, Bernardino. I'm thinking of Frank Zappa. Um, 4.9 up from 3.9. Washington, D.C., 3-3 up from 1.8. How does Washington, D.C. have like the lowest inflation rate in the country? How is that fair that the politicians in Washington, while they're in Washington, have the lowest inflation in the country? Something's wrong with that picture. The other place would be Houston. Houston, 3.0 up from 1.7. The point is these increases are huge on the year-over-year basis. Um, So I thought that that was just kind of interesting in terms of, uh, you know, looking at where people live and all that. So now things that were down, energy, gas was down 5% for the month. Energy is still down year over year, base effect, because energy has come down on a monthly basis. It's kind of wiped clean some of the base effect. That's a big positive. That's kind of where when we get to the you know strategy part of today's podcast, we'll talk about that. That's why some of the things we kind of play the reflation play, at least in some places, I prefer not equities. But moving costs were down, and so were storage costs, self-storage. So isn't it interesting as in real that real estate market gets crushed and you know prices are so high that no one can you know move that moving and storage costs go down and this affects the this, you know the inflation numbers. Import prices came out down 0.8 for the month. They've been you know they've been down uh, ten in a row, ten in a row. This is the biggest monthly decline since March, down two percent year over year, accelerating lower from down 1.5 and again down ten in a row in terms of the year over year number. That's import prices. PPI came out this week, down 0.5 for the year. It's the third biggest decline in PPI since the since the 2008-2009 crisis. The only times we've seen this before in the pandemic and in 2015. So it's the third worst decline in PPI in 14 years. The core rate at 2.4, 2.3 would be a major breakdown to core PPI. All right, core finished goods, the lowest since June of 2022, and intermediate demand service PPI. So service PPI is coming down fast, and it had been really high, and at 3.5, intermediate demand for services uh, is still high, but it's the lowest in two years, and it's down from 6.9 a year ago, and it's down from 4% a month ago at 3.5. Now, what's interesting, and that a lot of people don't, don't realize is PPI, when it comes to some of these businesses, it measures 
the price pressures by the pressure on margins. It's not even really prices. It's margin pressure. So, you know, you could mistake a really negative PPI number as deflation in prices when it's not. It's crushed margins. And that's not good for stocks. So that's what's really interesting here. Let's look at some of the some of the uh, service industries that posted outright deflation because of margin pressure. Machinery, vehicle wholesaling, apparel, footwear, traveler services, portfolio management, <laughs> oddly enough, healthcare, beauty and personal care, optical goods, rental of retail properties, food wholesaling, ocean freight. ISM, by the way, no, noted freight costs coming down too. So that's really interesting to me. This is margin pressure. All these businesses are kind of in deflation because their margins are getting crushed. They can't pass along the price increases of the prices paid. The prices received and not kept pace. And now it's kind of reversing. And so that's interesting. Capacity utilization came out. Normally, I wouldn't, you know, I don't pay too much attention to it. And yeah, the automobile strike is going to impact the industrial numbers, no doubt. But this number was expected to rise for the month. It didn't. It fell by five tenths. That's a big decline from 79.4 cap U to 78.9. It's the lowest since February of 2021. It's a full percentage point below the 40 year average. Cap U. Not contributing to inflation, understanding it's not as big a component of inflation as it used to be. This is still interesting to me because it was expected to rise despite the strike and it fell in a big way. Just another little tell, that's all. All right, breaking down other data here is interesting because we get some economic data that really show us that, you know, inflation's embedded. Yes, the year over year and the headline rates have come down and, you know, but are they going to get to two and then stay there? And if, you know, and they're going to get to two and stay there by the end of June, the Fed is higher longer and they want to, they want to ensure that inflation is defeated and they want pain in the economy before they're going to be even, you know, talking about shifting gears. So what has to happen is pain in the economy, pain in the markets. We're getting some of that pain in the economy. And like I said in the last podcast, if you look at the real Fed funds rate and measure that as whether the Fed is tight or loose, all right? The Fed has been, the Fed was loose right up until May of this year. It's only May of this year that the real policy rate got to a restrictive position. So they've only been restrictive for like five months. So now you're starting to see the rollover, right? Everyone's like, why is the economy not collapsed? Why is the economy not collapsed? It's not going to be a recession. Oh my God. No, because they, when they started hiking rates, they were the most stimulative real Fed funds policy rate in history. In history, inflation is like 8%. Fed funds rate was still 25 basis points. That's minus 775 real rate. The lowest, deepest negative in history. The most stimulative in history. So, of course, this, the economy didn't, you know, hasn't shown the signs of it outside of, you know, mortgages and housing and real estate. Now you're starting to see it because now they've been restrictive for several months. There's a lag time. You're starting to hit the lag time. It's right in there. Five, six months, you're there. The Philly Fed, the entire 2023 spike in the Outlook Index got really optimistic this year, is gone in a matter of three months, All right? And you have the current and the Outlook Index in the Philly Fed survey, both negative. The last time we saw that, 2008. 2008, not even in a pandemic, 
did this get negative? Not even in the tech bubble crash was this negative. It's negative now. All right. The current run of negative numbers in the current uh, uh, current conditions index. All right. Only three times have we ever seen this kind of run before. 1990, 2000, and 2008. All right. And margin pressure shows up here. And so what happens? Businesses said in the, we've seen this in the beige book and in Fed regional surveys. Businesses are saying, we're so hurting. Margins are getting crushed so much. We have to try and raise prices. All right. So the Philly Fed, the current percentage of firms from the Philly Fed raising their prices received, in other words, for their own goods, when they sell them, their final you know, price received versus what they're paying to make them. Current number of hiking prices received, 21%. Six months from now, 46.3%. More than double the number of firms that are raising prices now expect to be raising prices within the next six months. The Fed knows this. I mean, they're you know they're concerned. It's embedded. You do have a base effect coming into play that's not going to be as powerful as it would have been, you know, three months ago because of energy's come down. Then we look at the labor market. They're looking for pain in the labor market. We have it. Initial claims for unemployment benefits two hundred thirty-one thousand in the most recent week. That's up from two eighteen the week before. Big jump on a week-to-week basis. And the number of people receiving benefits rose 32,000 to 1.865 million. That's up 207,000 in the last eight weeks. 207,000 people now receiving unemployment benefits that eight weeks ago were not. It's above the April high. And it's the highest since December of 2021 when it was coming down after the pandemic. How about retail sales? The consumer is strong. Everyone keeps saying that. No. The year-over-year rate dropped to 25 from 4.1. Relative to inflation, that's negative. Further, there's 21 indexes that the Commerce Department breaks down for retail sales, in which they give you industry sectors like sporting goods, online shopping, eating and drinking establishments, you know, vehicles, so on and so forth. Of the 21 indexes, only three of them showed an increase in the year-over-year rate of change. That's 14%. The rest of them showed declines, all right? Only 13 of excuse me, 13 of 21 showed a decline for the month. 13 of 21, only four showed declines in September. So you went from, 60, from 19% of the sector showing monthly declines to 62% showing monthly declines. Now, let me look at it a different way because if we take... The this month's change being October from September and then compare it to last year's September to October sales. And let's get a different view of how this year over year dynamic is. And let's see what the change was last year in dollar terms and what the change is this year in dollar terms from month to month and compare the two. Online sales. The increase last year was 270, uh, excuse me, the increase last year was 1.37 billion 1.37 billion last year this year 270 million that's an 80.2 percent decline in the growth of online sales vehicles last year 2.73 billion was the increase from september to october this year was a decrease of 1.29 billion a 4 billion complete flip-flop negative reversal in vehicle sales no growth, 
now deflation or growth to deflation. Eating and drinking establishments. And I use online sales and eating and drinking establishments because they're the two most sensitive and robust and resilient uh, discretionary spending uh, sectors. All right, so online sales, your increase this year, 80% below last year's increase. For eating and drinking establishments, th- uh, this year, $270 million versus last year, $1.5 billion. 81.4% decline. Also, sectors posting reversals of more than $100 million from last year, furniture, sporting goods, and clothing. I mean, that's dramatically bad and broad in its negativity. All right. Not only that, real retail sales, the headline number has been negative eight out of nine months, 10 out of the last 12. That's only happened once in the last 40 years, 2008, 2009. I mean, come on. Say the economy is strong. I don't see it. All right. So what's the strategy here? What do we do? All right. Do we plow into stocks? Well, for some people, that's what they're doing. And I say no. That's not the preferred way for me. I mean, the Fed is not going to be cutting rates, certainly not by March. They're not going to. Okay. They already say we expect pain in labor. We expect pain in the economy below trend growth for a period of time. So they want to be able to declare victory over inflation. That would require some slowdown demand. And they just said that the slowdown in demand may need to be bigger than we thought it would be originally because the economy has been so robust that a strengthening economy will cause us to raise rates. What's the biggest risk to inflation right now would be the Fed cutting rates in March. So they're not going to do it. So they want to see that eradicated from the forward market, so they're going to continue to talk hawkishly. All right. But inflation's embedded, too. That's not good. All right, it's a 40-year downtrend that is reversed. It's going to be higher. You know, it's not you're getting back down to 2%. I'd say 2% at some point becomes the floor for the target rate, all right? So in that case, they're not going to be cutting rates anytime soon. There's no fiscal latitude here. No fiscal latitude whatsoever. You do that, the yield curve is going to pop and the bond market gets whacked. I think the yield curve pops anyway because the Fed acquiesces to higher inflation, keeps short rates lower to support the economy, and I mean two steps down the road, and the long end takes the brunt of the inflation and the supply vis-a-vis debt and fiscal deficits dynamic, and the curve steepens like crazy. How are you going to invest in a market where the margins are getting crushed? You can't declare inflation over and, you know, you will cut only if the economy is in recession and the market would have to take us there. So maybe that's the way it has to go. I mean, and you're now pricing in cut and besides tech info technology, you know, and the NASDAQ broader market's not making new highs here. And so let's go back to the consumer because the New York Fed survey was really interesting. They do a survey every month. They could they the household survey, right? Better off versus worse off a year from now. What's the expectation? Let's go back to before the pandemic, 2019. All right. What was expected would be much worse off was 12%, 11.9. July, those expecting worse off 12 months from now, 26.6. Now it's 30.9. It's tripled and it's at a new high for this little cycle. It was higher a year ago, but for this, it came down and now it's going back up versus the better off in 2019. It was 44%. 
July it was 29, now it's 28. So we see from July where it was a plus three positive in better off expectations a year from now, it's minus 2% net net. More people think they're going to be worse off 12 months from now. I mean, that's the problem. Are you going to invest in stocks on that? So what do you do? I'd rather play other places. I really like emerging markets. I mean, they've been under pressure, underperformed. The currencies have gotten crushed. All right. They have interest rates that are really high and much higher than inflation, which has come down. So this is the places where they can really cut rates fast, like Brazil. And that will really benefit the markets. And if you get the currencies to stabilize, you'll have capital inflow. You had a, an election over the weekend where a libertarian won in Argentina. Peronist since the 40s. They're going to dump the central bank. They're going to dump the peso. And this doesn't hurt Brazil. Brazil is one of the places I like. I like the currency there. I like any currency that's emerging market that has resource or commodity production, especially as net exporters, and especially if they are net exporters to China, and especially if it's one of the currencies China would like to include in the new paradigm basket of currencies that will replace the dollar as the means of global trade, like the Brazilian real. Good example. EWZ is the Brazilian stock index. ETF, I like that. It's breaking out. The Brazilian Real trades, of course, you know, over the counter or in the futures market. I like that. There's others that I like in emerging markets in that same vein. And this we give to our clients in our, uh, new, uh, you know, money markets and new age investing portfolio playbook. Okay. Because we want to help people and they're going to have to do things like currencies and emerging markets. Emerging markets should outperform. The ILF is the South American ETF along with the EWZ. Uh, so in that case, I also like the commodity sector. We've talked about this. You know, gold, we've talked about that. We've talked about the ags, still there, soybeans, S-O-Y-B, cane, C-A-N-E. The DBA is the ag commodity ETF. Those are the ETFs. Gold, of course, GLD. And now silver. I see silver at $30, and we're probably going to be a fast and furious move at some point in the not-too-distant future. All right, crypto. I mean, our call on Bitcoin and Ethereum has paid huge dividends. Hopefully you participated in that. You know, our clients are loving it, both the money management side and the research side. If you're not involved, that's part of our portfolio playbook and part of our overall macro strategy report as well. But how about real estate? Could real estate be the hottest sector in 2024? It very well could be. I don't think mortgage rates are going to go back up, at least not to the degree they've gone up. That's for, that's for sure. I mean, that's almost a mathematical certainty. All right. And when the Fed does cut rates, it's going to be a feeding frenzy in the housing market. And you don't have enough homes. It is a shortage of supply. So if housing is a commodity market, it is, ample, it is, it is very dramatically undersupplied. And this is a shortage where the backwardation, in other words, the premiums you're paying for nearby delivery of a home are way through the roof. Let's look at the data that just came out because there's an opportunity here. Building permits, still less than 1.5. They were up a little bit for the month, but less than 1.5, which is a seasonally adjusted annual rate, S-A-A-R. Right? So permits, less than 1.5 million per year. Starts, less than 1.5 million. All right? When you go back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, starts have been well above 1.5 million. 1.5 million is a level that is way below what's needed because you got 40 million more people living in the country now than you did in the 80s. 
All right, that's just as simple as it gets. Single family home starts are below a million and at the levels that we saw in the 1990s. Not only that, they have been negative relative to like kind of what you would say would be like a five or 10 year average for an entire period from 2007 and below a million from 2007 till 2019. It's 12 years of lost growth in single family home building because of the crisis in 2008 and 2009 that we just came out of, then the pandemic hits, and now we're just trying to climb out of it, and we're not still even out of it. Single-family homes under construction, right now, under construction, currently under construction, down 15% from last year. Home completions, still below a million, and down 5% just this past month. No wonder the NAHB survey is so negative, even though you would think that for home builders, this is nirvana. It's, it's not nirvana because the traffic of prospective buyers is so low because affordability stinks. I mean, it's price and it's mortgage rates. So mortgage rates have come down. Price is not going to come down. But at least you'll loosen up the affordability a little bit and you will have the traffic of prospective buyers rise. But right now, the tra- traffic of prospective buyers has only been worse at a rate of 21 is the index, all right? It was 43 months ago. There's only three other times it's been worse in November, December, which is typically a seasonally bad month, but doesn't mean it's always bad. But this is so bad. The only other times you've been this bad in November, 2022, last year, 2007 through 11, and 1990. I mean, you know, so how about the builders? The builders have taken off. These stocks are already so hot. They're through the roof. All right. Um, you know, it's like a rock star band right now, the home builders. Let me introduce you to the lead vocalist, Pulte, international superstar. How about the lead guitarist? You know, it's like Led Zeppelin-like. We got Jimmy Page on lead guitar, Toll Brothers. You got Lenar on drums. You got K&B on bass. And there's your rock star band for the home builders. All right. The XHB almost in new highs. The ITB, even better, all right? You don't have things that are linked to kind of uh, remodeling, and the remodel index is way up, by the way. Excuse me, it's way down. So you see remodeling has come down, refinances, of course, have collapsed, the whole nine yards, right? But home building is still there. ITB is the home construction ETF. That's outperformed the S&P 500 by 30% over the last 52 weeks. The XHB is up by 18% against the S&P over the last 52 weeks. But those have taken off already. I'm not saying you buy them here, although there's probably still upside. But something like lumber. Lumber gets back above $593 per thousand board feet. That would be a major breakout. Lumber got to $1,700, came down to $260, and is back to $600. And at $600, it would be a record high for any time prior to 2019. See, that's part of the problem with this inflation that people don't understand. You know, even though lumber is down 81% from peak from its peak, it's at a level that prior to 2019, for the history of 50 years before that, tracking these commodity prices would have been a record high. Wood is the global timber. Cut is the U.S. lumber uh, and timber and forestry ETFs. Those are definitely potential buys. Some of the individual shares in there are much better than the index itself. So it may be a stock picker's dynamic. We have thoughts on that too. You can certainly email me at sales at weldenonline.com. Sales at weldon, W-E-L-D-O-N, online, one word, weldenonline.com. 
and I will send you reports on housing or if you want the metals report or you want the playbook. You know, I'll give you a sample of what we do here and give you a better idea, kind of, and we'll help you understand some of the things we even talk about in the podcast. I mean, the MBB, which would be the mortgage bond uh, ETF, kind of bottom. There's a bunch of REITs that look pretty good here with major long-term uptrend breakouts. I mean, they go back to like 2007 highs that are being broken, those downtrends that have been in place now for like 15 years. So it might be the hottest sector out there right now. So we'll see. Email me if you want some more information. We do the global macro strategy report, which is daily and you know it covers everything all over the world. Uh, also do the portfolio playbook, which is U.S. stock-centric, covers the sectors, uh, gives various portfolios depending on what kind of investor you are. We can't possibly know what everyone's doing out there. And then my discretionary portfolio, seeking to outperform the S&P 500, which has done tremendously well this year. Uh, and then, of course, you know, hit us up on Twitter, which would be money underscore podcast or, you know, on Twitter uh, uh, at money underscore podcast or follow me still at Weldon Live, which is the former product. We just rebranded it to make all of it consistent with the podcast and the portfolio playbook. So the Weldon Live is now the global macro strategy report. You can find me still on Twitter, though, at Weldon Live and definitely check out YouTube. A lot of free stuff on YouTube, a lot of videos. It's Gregory Weldon, user backslash Gregory, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y, Weldon on YouTube. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Money, Markets, and New Age Investing.